In this episode of 750 Mills, how the language you speak can determine what type of personality you'll have. Kinda. Worried about the climate situation getting worse? How about some good news about things that are actually better now? And what's the best thing to do if you have an 85-year-old or older grandparent lying around? Take him on a road trip, of course. All that plus today's secret link and the feel-good feature track is coming at you right now. Hey everyone, welcome to 750 Mills, the show that's all about bringing you good news, interesting stories, and genuinely useful things to know so you can start your week off right and on a good note, maybe even two. I'm your host Andre, and today we're going to be talking about the end of an era when it comes to the teenage years of the internet. Some surprising things about languages and how it affects not just your personality, but how you interact with and perceive the world. And something to warm your heart, just to wrap things up all nice and tight like by the end of the episode. So, make like me and grab a nice hot drink, just kick back and relax, and let's talk about stuff. Folks, it is the end of an era. As of the beginning of 2021, Flash is officially dead. If you've ever watched some really fancy animations on the internet, whether it's a really graphics-heavy website or actual cartoons, or even full TV shows and adverts, especially during the late 90s or the early 2000s, that's probably all thanks to Flash. If you've ever used the internet for any length of time and you've ever played a game on your web browser, you know, games like Bejeweled, Farmville, Line Rider, or the likes of Pet Society, that's all thanks to Flash. Entire careers were launched on YouTube and millions of dollars made playing free games, all thanks to Flash. And now, it's officially been put out to pasture. Adobe Flash Player, or Macromedia Flash when it was launched in 1996, was a plugin for web browsers that brought rich animations and interactivity to the early World Wide Web. Flash became really popular because it provided a means for people to create and display visually rich and highly interactive, if you wanted it to be, Content that was quick and easy to download, and this was a huge factor back when high-speed internet was still years away from becoming affordable, widespread. Remember dial-up internet? If you know that sound, well, yeah, that's you getting old right there, buddy. That sound is the sound of faster-than-a-speeding snail internet connections. At the earliest stages of dial-up internet, it could take you several dozen seconds to load just one or two images. An entire web page is loading in minutes was common and expected. Compared to today, if um, where if a web page doesn't load in less than six seconds, that's considered slow. The worst was when you were in the middle of waiting for stuff to load, and then somebody picked up the landline. Remember landlines? To make a call, your internet just straight up died, and you'd have to connect and reload and do everything from the start all over again. Things made with Flash flourished in that environment, not just because a lot of well-designed Flash web pages and Flash games and animations were visually pretty, but the small download sizes, think around 1 to 10 megabytes on average, made it quick enough to load in your web browser. But once it was fully loaded, even if your internet connection cut out, you could still completely watch the clip or play the game without any interruptions. Not everything about Flash is great though, and not everyone was happy about Flash. One of the most prominent detractors of Flash was none other than Steve Jobs himself. 
Flash was not allowed to run on iPhones and iPads, and Steve Jobs outlined the reasons why in an open letter that he wrote back in April 2010. He argued that Flash was cumbersome to use on touchscreens, it drained battery life, and that it was a security threat. He said that videos and animations can and should be delivered with HTML5, which is a language used to structure and present information on websites and web pages, instead of Flash. Despite having the disapproval of Steve Jobs and not being given the blessing of Apple to run on their devices, Adobe still developed a version of Flash that worked on smartphones, but it didn't really matter. The likes of Facebook, Netflix, and YouTube were already streaming videos to smartphones without Flash, and around the tail end of 2011, Adobe killed Flash development for mobile devices. Flash for desktop computers was still a thing though, despite its continued security issues. In 2015, Apple disabled the Flash plugin for Safari on desktop by default, and Google Chrome started blocking pieces of Flash content. Finally, in 2017, Adobe said that it would be sunsetting Flash in 2020. Well, it's 2021 now, so here we are. So what happens to all the things created using Flash, now that Flash is no longer a thing on the internet? This is where the Internet Archive comes in. The Internet Archive is a digital library of sorts whose mission statement is, quote, universal access to all knowledge, end quote. They provide free public access to collections of digitized materials, including websites, software applications and games, music, movies and videos, moving images, and millions of books. They also happen to be an activist organization who advocate for a free and open internet. If you've ever used something called the Wayback Machine to look at really old versions of websites you use today, or maybe websites that no longer exist, that's thanks to the Internet Archive. Well, they've taken it upon themselves to preserve a good chunk of the Flash-based media from the past. In a report from The Register, they say that while Flash is, or was, a hot mess, many creators have done good work using it, and those efforts deserve to remain available as artifacts that show how animation and video became widespread features on the web. The way they've done this is using something called Ruffle, which is a Flash emulator. It can run Flash media by providing similar functionality, but without the security risks of Flash. Of that, the Internet Archive's Jason Scott says this, quote, While Ruffle's compatibility with Flash is less than 100%, it will play a very large portion of historical Flash animation in the browser, both a smooth and accurate rate, end quote. With that, a window into the wild west of the pre-broadband era of the World Wide Web looks like it's going to be sticking around for the foreseeable future. Slick visuals with two smooth and janky at the same time animations and all of that. Just a word of warning as well, because just as with the internet overall, both then and at present, if you do decide to check out the internet archive, just bear in mind that it's got its family-friendly areas and it also has its family-unfriendly areas. Moving on from languages spoken by machines and over to languages that us humans are more familiar with, just how different can your personality become if you speak more than one language? There's a Czech proverb that goes something like this. Learn a new language, get a new soul. In a way, there's an argument to be made for that, and this idea has fascinated academics from all disciplines, including linguists, psychologists, and neurologists, just to name a few. Researchers have observed that the personalities of people who are multilingual seemingly tend to change depending on the language they speak. At the moment, there's not a 100% definitive link that proves that, but the effects speaking a different language can have on your personality, even if it's just on the surface of it, 
Still pretty fascinating. Check this out. A report from Psychology Today quotes three people, with one saying, When I'm around Anglo-Americans, I find myself awkward and unable to choose my words quickly enough. When I'm amongst Latinos or Spanish speakers, I don't feel shy at all. I'm witty, friendly, and I become very outgoing. Another says, in English, my speech is very polite, with a relaxed tone, always saying please and excuse me. When I speak Greek, I start talking more rapidly, with a tone of anxiety and in kind of a crude way. Yet another one says, I find when I'm speaking Russian, I feel like a much more gentle, softer person. In English, I feel more harsh, businesslike. Dr. Francois Grosjean, Emeritus Professor of Psycholinguistics, Neuchâtel University, Switzerland. I'm very sorry for likely pronouncing many of those words wrong. Um, suggests that what is seen as a change in personality is most probably a shift in attitudes and behaviors that correspond to a shift in situation or context, independent of language. Basically, the bicultural bilinguals in these studies were behaving biculturally, that is, adapting to the context they were in. It's interesting to note that the suggestion here is that it's possible for you to know two languages well without being immersed in both relevant cultures, respectively. So you can be very fluent in two languages but only know one culture intimately, and that appears to be an important factor in all of this. On the other hand, you can be fluent in two languages and know both cultures relevant to each language very well, very intimately, and this can have very different effects on you relative to the former situation. Basically, it's not necessarily the language itself that directly affects your apparent personality when you speak it. It's more likely to be what you know about the related culture and attitudes attached to that language that can affect how you present yourself and your ideas when you speak a language that's different to your native one. When we talk about attitude and culture attached to a specific language, this makes me think about the Korean language in particular. Because as I've learned, depending on the age of the person you're talking to, the variant of respectful language you use changes. It's one reason why when you meet somebody new and both of you speak Korean, one of the things you'll invariably talk about at the outset is each other's age. For example, if the person you're talking to is younger than you are, that person is expected to use more respectful forms of verbs, and you can use more casual forms of the very same verbs the other person speaks. So while the words themselves and the varieties of these words are a feature of the Korean language, how you use them is caused and influenced by the key component of respect that's built into Korean culture. The culture is the main thing. The features of the language is secondary. How does this work in practice? Well, I can tell you about a personal experience I had during the short time I was trying to learn Korean. It's like really basic stuff. To greet someone and to say hello to them in Korean, you say, 안녕하세요. That's the default form of the phrase. Also, that's the respectful version of it by default. And the reason behind why that's the preferred way of saying hello in Korean is you don't know the age of the person you're speaking to yet. So by default, you show them respect through the words you use when you speak the language until you know their age, unless it's really obvious that they're older or younger than you are. See how respect is built into the culture? The language itself just gives you the tools to display that respect. I once made the mistake of greeting someone who was clearly older than I was with a casual form of hello. I said, 
Anyang, and immediately my close Korean friend started apologizing profusely to that person on my behalf. Thankfully, the other person just chuckled and said something along the lines of, "Ass, all right. I actually appreciate that you make me feel like I'm younger than you." Just think about how this contrasts to British or American English. We use the exact same verbs or action words when talking to people, regardless of their age. You don't need to ask them how old both of you are in relation to one another when you first meet them, just so you know which verb forms to use when you talk to them. If you do that, they'll probably just look at you funny or something. So yeah, culture is the big thing, and language is just the primary means for expressing aspects of that culture. That's not to say that the language you speak has no direct effect on you at all. Different languages have different effects on how you perceive the world around you. Based on what researchers have studied and observed so far, it seems like your native language can determine what things about the world you focus your attention on more, as well as what things you tend to ignore. This idea was presented by Dr. Antonio Benitez Burraco, a biologist, linguist, and an assistant professor at the University of Seville, Spain, in his article titled "How the Language We Speak Affects the Way We Think." In it, he provides the examples of the Russian language, which has 12 basic terms for colors, and a language spoken in New Guinea, Dani, that's D-A-N-I, which only has two: Mili for cold colors, and Mola for warm colors. Researchers found that Dani people are able to distinguish among different color tones, like red, yellow, and orange, despite labeling them identically, Mola. They also found that people distinguish better between two color tones that are named differently, for instance, blue and green, because different languages frame the continuum of color in different ways. People speaking different languages are expected to focus differently regarding colors. He also writes that Chinese-speaking children learn to count earlier than English-speaking children because Chinese numbers are more regular and transparent than English numbers. For example, in Chinese, eleven is. Ten one. Likewise, people speaking some Australian languages orient themselves in space better than English-speaking people. They often know north from south, even in darkness, and possibly because their languages have absolute spatial dictics. As a quick note, dictic, which is spelled D-E-I-C-T-I-C, means something that shows or points out directly. I have to look that up. This means that when referring to a distant object. They don't say that car or that tree over there, but rather the car to the north or the tree to the south, because they need to know direction in order to correctly assemble utterances in their languages. They are more accustomed than us to pay attention to the cardinal points. Also, the way people think about time is encoded deeply in the grammar of most languages. In some languages, like English, time is tripartite. Meaning, it consists of three parts mainly: past, present, and future. However, in another language spoken in New Guinea, Yimas, there are four types of pasts, from recent events to remote past. So, the features of the language we speak can influence how we perceive time, and that may also be a factor in why social scientists today can classify different cultures into two categories based on how they think about time: monochronic cultures. And polychronic cultures. For monochronic cultures like the United States or the United Kingdom, it's normal to schedule tasks and appointments to start and end at a certain time. 
time is seen as a line stretching forward into the future and backwards into the past. But in a polychronic culture, time is seen as flexible. That means that appointments and deadlines may be more flexible as well. In polychronic cultures, it's more common to do many things at once. Interruptions are regarded as normal instead of undesirable. In some cultures, particularly Asian cultures and some Native American cultures, time is seen as a wheel moving in reoccurring cycles. On a practical level, that means they may need to carefully consider past events before making decisions for the future. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that myself. English speakers tend to think of time as distance. We say, uh, what a long day when we're working overtime, for example. In other languages, like Spanish and Greek, you'll refer to days as full instead of long. It's as if time was a container. I'm part Filipino, and in the Philippines, we have this thing called Filipino time. Basically, it's when people say, hey, let's meet up at this time. We all agree, and then everybody shows up an hour or two late anyway, all the time. So maybe not necessarily monochronic or polychronic, maybe just chronically late. Hey everyone, just taking a quick break to thank you guys for tuning in and to point you in the direction of 750 Mills on social media. Check out the podcast on minds.com slash 750ML to get news, updates, and extras. You can also check out the official Telegram channel by searching for the 750ML podcast in the app or pointing your web browser to t.me slash the750mlpodcast. Make sure you check them out and subscribe to 750mls there. Links will be in the show notes and in the official website, of course. And you can find all of those things at www.750ml.fm. If you drop by Minds or Telegram, you'll find out why there's been a wrinkle in the first few episodes this year, how it'll pan out from there. Not a big deal, really, but just check it out if you're curious. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far, one of the best ways to support it is to tell a friend. really appreciate that. You can do this by sharing an episode or maybe an audiogram on your social media status or story. And let your friends know that if they're looking for something that's a bit of a refreshing change from just a constant bombardment of negative stuff in the news that just brings you down, the 750ml podcast might be something they'd enjoy. It's all about good stuff and interesting things, tell them. Anyway, let's just get back to more of the episode, shall we? Be honest. How well do you really know the city that you live in? Do you know all the nice little secrets tucked away in those small corners and hidden alleyways that only the most intrepid local would know? You know, that great little hole-in-the-wall takeaway coffee kiosk or that out-of-the-way burger joint that you'd never guess was there would serve some pretty mind-blowing sandwiches that make it worth the effort to suss out where it is and get to it. Or at the very least, have you been to all the tourist traps? I don't know about you, but I know that a lot of my friends, and I'll include myself in this category as well, are pretty guilty of barely knowing the city they live in. And that's just a thing. We take the places we live in for granted, and we probably know more about other cities abroad that we visit as tourists. That's too bad. Every city has its own identity, its own hidden gems and local spots that contribute to their own flavor of fascination, wonder, and enrichment. Even if it's just a little bit to its own little spot in the local scene. Why do a lot of us go out of our way to enjoy things from far away, while we somehow tend to ignore the nice things we have nearby? And we're just talking about cities, by the way. What about our own country? Now that makes things even more interesting.
That's something Joy Ryan, a now 90-something-year-old from a small town in Ohio, had been thinking about to some degree. Joy had never been to or seen a mountain in person until she was 85 years old, when her grandson Brad took her on a three-day trip to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. She also hadn't seen a lot of things that most people who travel in and around America would consider pretty common sights, like the coast, for example. Joy is a widower of over 20 years, and she worked a minimum wage job up until her 80s to make ends meet. That being her situation, it wasn't any wonder why it might have been a bit of a challenge to get around and see the sights, so Brad thought it would be nice to help his grandma experience the world. Here's what he said in a report from CBS News, quote, I want my grandma to have this experience. So, we took a very impromptu three-day trip to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. During that trip, that's when I started to realize how unconventional it is for somebody in their 30s, a grandson, to be traveling around with her grandmother. We definitely stood out like sore thumbs everywhere we went. I knew that as we were traveling, our story was touching people's hearts, but I didn't know there were so many people who had regrets that they didn't do more with their grandparents when they were alive." End quote. This inspired Ryan to spend more time with Grandma Joy and to keep taking her to the different national parks across the country. To that end, Ryan created Grandma Joy's road trip page on GoFundMe, which helped pay for their first major road trip of going to 21 national parks in 28 days, and they've been going ever since. Grandma Joy seems to be enjoying it quite a bit, according to Ryan. Quote, We've done 25,000 miles on the road in the last three and a half years, and we've gone through 38 states. We've seen grizzly bears, we've been charged by a moose, it was harrowing. We had all these dramatic experiences and all this wildlife that she's never set eyes on in Ohio. Her favorite animal that she's seen so far are prairie dogs, which is kind of comical. End quote. Ryan also added that at her age, Grandma Joyce very cognizant that at every moment, she's probably seeing something for the first and last time, and that fact had dramatically changed the way he lives his life as well. Real quick, how many national parks does the United States of America actually have? We know it's a big country, but do you reckon something along the lines of maybe one or more per each of its 50 states? That's what most people would think, and that's what a lot of outlets report, and they'd say that the United States has 60-something national parks. That may not be entirely accurate, though. As of this episode, there are over 423 national parks all across the USA. Within those 423 sites are 20 different types of parks, which are categorized based on a number of different factors, such as being places associated with American military history, like battlefield sites or historical parks that commemorate important people or places in American history, as well as other categories such as monuments, scenic trails, rivers, and recreation areas, among other things. Of these 400 and change parks, there are 62 parks with the words National Park in their official proper names, and maybe this is one of the reasons why there might be a bit of confusion when people talk about National Parks, the proper names, versus National Parks, the classification. I'll leave a link to the National Parks Foundation page in the show notes if you want to dig a bit deeper into that. Of course, with the global pandemic and the global lockdown that's been everyone's experience for the past year, that's kind of put a damper on Ryan and Grandma Joy's trip. While that's been going on, Brad has been writing a book based on his experiences with Grandma Joy, and they're still spending time together, taking properly social distance walks together every now and then. In a report from the Zanesville Times recorder, 
Brad acknowledges that the possibility of not completing the trip is always there, but he seems to be taking it in stride. Here's what he said, quote, I hope that we prompt a lot of people to think about not squandering time. Even now, we are all thinking about all the time we are wasting that we could have been visiting with our loved ones in person. We will be a lot more grateful for what we took for granted before. I am grateful for what we have done, but I am hoping there are more photographs to take and put in the archive of this journey. End quote. You guys should check out Grandma Joy's trip on Instagram. Brad's keeping it updated, and it looks like Grandma Joy's keeping her spirits up reading draft pages of Brad's book, and she recently just got a vaccine shot for COVID-19. Hopefully that means there's a lot more road trips and national park visits in store for Brad and Grandma Joy. Speaking of parks and green things, a lot of people today are hyper-focused and are concerned about the environment for a variety of reasons. There are now more trees than ever, or rather, than there were 100 years ago. We've got a few reports from around the world that are all showing us positive trends. First up, in the United States, which has about 8% of the world's forests, there has been a 380% uptick in the volume of forest growth compared to a century ago. That's 2020 versus 1920, with the greatest gains being in and around the East Coast. The growth is said to be due to a number of factors. This includes the conservation and preservation of national parks, responsible tree growing within plantations, which have been planting more trees than they harvest, and the movement of people from rural areas into more densely populated areas, namely cities and suburbs. In the United Kingdom, forest levels have returned to the highest level in over 250 years, according to woodland historians. How do you get a job like that? Bringing the amount of woodlands that comprise the UK's total land area to 11% and change. In comparison, the European average is about 44%, with cross-channel neighbor France being at around 33%, and Finland having the highest, having about 72% of its land area being forced. There are a few reasons for this growth in the UK, and some experts suggest that tax breaks have encouraged some private individuals to branch out into forestry, with proceeds from the sale of timber being exempt from income tax and corporation tax, there being no capital gains tax on the growth of value in tree crops. Those buying woodland as an investment have found that it has outperformed shares and commercial property in recent years with an annual return of 5%. Once owned for two years, it is exempt from inheritance tax. Kind of interesting, I guess. What's in store for the future? Over the next 50 years, the Woodland Trust has an ongoing campaign to plant 20 million trees in Britain to bring overall forest volume closer in line to the European average. The UK isn't the only one. Pakistan also has a similar campaign going on. They're looking to plant 10 million trees to restore their lost forests. Based on a 2020 report, only 5% of Pakistan's land area is comprised of forest, the lowest in the world, compared to a global average of 31%. It's not surprising that Pakistan is reported as being one of the most at-risk countries in the world that are vulnerable to climate change-related issues such as flooding and drought. One interesting thing to note is how they're going about doing it. They're choosing types of trees that don't quite need a lot of water, ones that can survive and thrive in Pakistan's arid climate, such as the Adiracta indica, a fast-growing type of mahogany that's commonly known as the neem tree, that's N-E-E-M. These trees typically don't need to be watered after the first five years. So why are trees so important to us and the environment? 
Well, trees affect our climate and weather in three main ways. They help lower temperatures, they help reduce energy usage, and they help reduce and remove pollutants from the air. Trees cool air through something called evotranspiration, a combined process of simultaneous evaporation and transpiration which releases moisture into the air. You might be more familiar with evaporation, where water is converted from liquid to vapor form and released into the air, such as directly from the ground from soil, waterways, or even pavement. Transpiration is what happens when water is drawn up from the soil through a plant's roots and evaporates from its leaves. The shade from some type of trees planted in a strategic way can help cool a building during warm months and allow the sun's rays to shine through during colder ones, in addition to protecting it from strong winds. This can help regulate cooling and heating throughout the year and can have a real impact on energy usage and expenses. Researchers even found that if trees grow throughout urban areas, for example, if you plant a tree to the west and a tree to the south or southwest of a home, you can reduce annual heating costs by up to 8% and cooling costs by up to 47%, and all of that adds up over time as well. In a report from the Environmental Protection Agency titled Reducing Urban Heat Islands, Compendium of Strategies, Trees, and Vegetation, tree leaves have been found to filter particles in the air, including dust, ozone, carbon monoxide, and other pollutants. Trees can also remove carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas, and release oxygen into the air. They play a part in something a lot of environmentally conscious people today are interested in, carbon sequestration. That's because they can hold between 35 to 800 pounds of carbon dioxide each year, depending on the type of tree. In fact, one study from 2006 estimated total annual air pollutant removal by urban trees in the United States as being around 784,000 tons, and that has a value of about $3.8 billion. The long and short of it is that the more trees there are, the cooler the climate can become, and the cleaner the air around you can be. And you can save a lot of money. And that is all thanks to trees. Anyway, it's time for this episode's featured track, something from 2006, a song called Under Repair by a band called Imago. It's just a straight up great pop song with a catchy chorus and a fantastic vocal hook. You'll see what I mean when you listen to it. Also, plus points for a cheesy, low-budget 70s-inspired video. That's it for this episode of 750 Mills. Make sure you head on over to 750ml.fm to check out links to stuff we've talked about here, and that includes the featured track along with this episode's secret link. You can subscribe and listen to the 750ml podcast on podomatic.com. Just search for it. Spotify, Deezer, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever podcasts might be found. Just type in 750ML podcast in the search box and tap on the follow button. Links to all of that will be in the show notes for this episode as well, which you can find on the website. You know how it goes. That's 750ML.fm. And hey, if you have been enjoying it so far, please consider leaving a star rating and review. Your feedback helps improve the podcast and it can help other people find it as well. And I'd really appreciate it. You can always take it back if you change your mind. Anyway, folks, thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll leave you with this thought from John Steinbeck on whether or not you should bother comparing yourselves to others in life. You can't make a racehorse out of a pig, but you can make a very fast pig. Something to think about. You guys take care, alright? <laughs>